0: Welcome to the Chewing Gum Podcast, where we'll be chewing on some of our honest Asian Australian experiences.
1: I'm Sherry, and I'm Clover. Welcome back to episode seven. Today, we'll be taking a deep dive into mental health and its impacts on our well-being. We have a special guest on the show, Lena Ali, where she'll be discussing her experience, the importance of mental health, and self-care methods that all of our listeners can adopt. Lena is also the host of Shut Up and Listen, a radio show based on discussing intersectional identities, culture, and religion. So after this, go right ahead to her Instagram page for more information. So instead of having us to introduce our guest, Lena, could you just tell us about yourself and what you do?
2: Hey Heyo, guys. Um, thanks for having me here, Sherry and Clover. Um Oh, it's really, really awesome to be talking about this topic today. It's one of the most, I think, dear topics to me. So, as they've already said, my name. I am a second year student at um, the University of Sydney, studying politics and English literature. Um, I'm a massive nerd. I absolutely love reading. Currently I'm doing Shakespeare at university so I'm pretty excited and my pronouns are she and her and I am of a South Indian
0: background so yes. Yeah. So our health encompasses our physical body, mental and spiritual well-being but sometimes our mental health is discounted or not as prevalently discussed due to the underlying stigma and during the lockdown Whilst you're not there physically when you're working remotely, it can be difficult to detach from gadgets because you're almost expected to be there 24-7. So coming back to our topic, we want to discuss ways we take care of our mental well-being. Before we do that, I'm really interested to hear from you, Lena. So when did you begin to acknowledge how important mental health is?
2: I was actually 12, 13, year 7, year 8. At that point in time, I was at a private um, Islamic school. I'd just kind of gone through something pretty traumatic. Like, I mean, that entire schooling experience was trash. I absolutely I did not enjoy my private Islamic schooling experience at all. But um, Year 7, I think, was quite a tipping point for me. It was the first time I'd actually encountered uh, someone who was suicidal, not me, someone else, a person I knew back in Year 7. She was a, you know, 12-year-old at to- you know, the the after effects of that, because at 12, you don't know how to deal with that, right? And you kind of, you take on a lot of stuff. You take on a lot of the trauma that they're going through and it kind of sits with you at 12. You don't know how to, pl- you know, you don't know how to process that. You And these things aren't talked about within families. They're definitely not talked about um, within schools. And I remember going to see a counsellor. She was just kind of really amazing. She was one of the best things about that school. Um, it was really at that point when I kind of started picking up, okay, something is very, very wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong. Up until that point, there had been multiple other incidents, but um, I think E7 would definitely be that tipping point because it, it mentally pushed me, I think exhausted me a lot. Um, and it required me to actually kind of save myself you know, get back up on my two feet and kind of acknowledge, okay, there's something wrong and I need to do something about it. Um, so I think that's when I came into the idea of mental illness, like when I became aware of mental illness as a, as a subject, that's something that's quite important. But I'd say in terms of mental health, because you don't get taught mental health, right? Because mental health and mental illness are two different things. Everybody has mental health because, you know, it's just like physical health or spiritual health. Everybody has it. But in terms of where you sit on that scale, you can have good mental health, you can have bad mental health. And usually mental illnesses, you know, they often appear or they you know often become uh, instigated when you're most on the bad end of it because you're not doing that well. That'd be my answer to that.
1: Was there like a time when you were like, okay, I think I need the help right now. Or was it just like an advice from someone else and you were like, oh, I think I'm not really thinking correctly.
2: First time I saw a counsellor was when I was 12 years old. But even that was very sporadic because I was at a private Islamic school. There was a lot of, um, you know, they the way that the counsellor was presented to the students you know it's just someone you're talking to it's not it's not particularly something um nothing's wrong with you like and i don't mean to say that people have mental illnesses there's something wrong with them but it was very much like you know brush it in the carpet under the carpet kind of stuff now in terms of actually going out and seeking clinical normal psychological Mm -hmm. help i was 14 Mm-hmm. 15, 15, it was, and Sherry would know this, this was the year that I actually took off my hijab. So I used to wear the hijab all the way until I was 15. And then because I moved schools when I was in year nine, to a public school, Sherry and I attended the same school growing up, I took off my hijab. And that was I, you know, I, I really marked that as the period where I was like, I absolutely need to see someone I'm going crazy. I've just come from a different, completely different environment, schooling environment, there's a culture shock, I don't know what I'm doing with myself. I feel like I need to, you know, I took off the hijab. There's like multiple different things. And I think 14 was the first time I'd actually ever gone and sat um, in a clinical psychologist's office and gone, help me. I don't know what's going on.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you think like the stigma behind taking steps to take care of your mental state, did that really kind of backfire as well?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, you guys mentioned, you know, spiritual well-being and stuff. Um, So I am Muslim and, you know, I don't think this is particular to only the Muslim community. I think this is particular across... Um, any family or individuals or communities that are you know might be might be very religious or might have a high religious um, involvement or faith what we often find and see is that religion is used and can be used to reject or undermine and belittle um, Mm -hmm. people going to seek help because you know whether you're a Muslim you're you're Christian you're Sikh Hindu Buddhist whatever it is the terms often thrown around pray to God and it'll be fine just Mm -hmm. you know talk to God and we you know I would Told, just pray, it'll be fine. You know, fast, it'll be fine. Read the Quran, it'll be fine. And these things severely mess with your mind, right? Because mm-hmm. it, what starts happening then is that um, at the back of my mind, what started happening was I went. So does this mean I'm a bad Muslim? Like, so I'm not mm-hmm. worthy enough to be a Muslim? And so that leads to a whole different spiral, something you have mm. to grapple with. While at the same time your mental health isn't already doing well, right? So I would say from the ages of 13 until 19, I was partic- participating is wrong word, but I was engaging in self harm activities. I was suicidal, and suicidal ideation was a you know a big part of my life. So that's a good six years, like that. That's from memory where I can actually mark it. I'd say from ages of thirteen up until nineteen. Say out of those six years, for at least maybe four to five years, the religious guilt that sat at the back of my head because you know religion had been used so many times to say, "Oh, pray and it'll be fine," or if you're you know if you go and you decide to say, "I'm depressed to someone." or you say, um, you know, you're not, I'm not doing very well, then that means you're just ungrateful to God and God doesn't love ungrateful and God doesn't love ungrateful people. So there's, there's a lot of that. So, you know, I hope that answers the question, but that, that's, you know, that's the kind of framework I was living and working with. I was wondering why
0: you decided to take off your hijab when you moved schools. Was that like um, a decision that you made yourself or was it like someone made that decision for you? So um,
2: I'm going to answer, so I'm going to give you a bit of backstory and then I'll answer the question just to make sure that um, I can use this platform to really get the opinion out there so first and foremost when I did first with the hijab I was nine years old um, again so I'm going to specify here a hijab is a piece of head covering that is worn by Muslim women um, and it's often used to connect themselves to God it's a, you know it means something individually spiritual to each Muslim woman who's out there Um, There is a misconception presented in the um, Western media, presented in Hollywood movies by politicians that the hijab is a tool of oppression, that it's been used and forced on women to, you know, abuse them and take away their rights and all that sort of stuff. I don't disagree that there are a small minority of Muslims who may engage in those kind of things a large majority of Muslim women who do wear, wear it of their own choice. And when I was nine, I did wear my dress. I really loved the hijab at that point. And I was like, it was a very, you know, at nine years old, it was like the most amazing thing I could do. I was like, yes. And my parents didn't have any influence in it. If anything, my parents were actually like, are you sure? You're like nine. Do you really want to do this? Um, so, you know, it was very much the opposite. And they wanted to make sure that I wanted to wear it. Um, now, coming to your question of why I took it off. So, By the time I had left the private school, the hijab no longer resembled something to me that was a connection to God, that was something beautiful, nothing. At 15, my hijab became a symbolic reminder for me, I guess, something I started associating Mm -hmm. with that schooling experience I was there for nine years in those nine years I endured physical abuse there was verbal abuse there was you know and physical abuse at hands of um, boys um, and teachers the racism was rampant it was disgusting that was the school at at the point where you know in that school was the first time I'd ever engaged in self-harming behavior so I'd come away from the school that was meant to be a place where other Muslim kids like me and I was meant to form relationships and friendships I came away from that school going a I'm never putting my own kid in an Islamic private school and b, like I just hated everything about it and the hijab was something I'd worn when I was in that school I decided to wear the hijab when I was in that school so I came away at 15 14 and I was like I want nothing to do with it anymore and it's quite tragic and it's quite sad and now obviously um I've come out of that. I don't now, I don't, I don't no longer see in hijab that I'm wearing, um, you know, when I do pray or anything. And I don't look at it and go, oh, you know, this is bad memories. But it's just, I think it's a matter of easing myself back into it because I definitely do want to wear it again. But um, mm. as, as to why I did it at that point, if I had worn it any longer, at fourteen, fifteen, my suicidal ideation, the self harm was like an all time peak. And at that point, what 15 year old Lena needed was to say goodbye to the hijab. And that's what I did. And yeah, that's that's where I
0: am. It's really great to hear that you were brave enough to do that and, you know, realizing that is definitely really great. Was it you that decided to move schools or like, did you tell someone and, you know, when you said you were suffering from all of this abuse, did you did you speak to someone about it? Did people take action? Did I speak to someone about it? I think I did
2: when I was a bit younger, but eventually what happened was because there is such... And it was usually either parents and my parents did go and speak to the school as well. But we've got to remember how private schooling systems work, right? Kids are there, parents are paying fees. So if you've got someone and there is definite, there's a definite hierarchy that exists within um, private schools to begin with, right? Um, often action would be taken. Often it'd be turned on me and um, school administration would say, well, you know, it's part of life. She needs to toughen up. And um, I, there were only a very handful of teachers. Actually, I could Count them on one hand from that school who I know took what I said seriously and you know gave me advice or comforted me or wanted, you know, to do something to make the situation better. In terms of the decision of whose decision it was to move, I had been begging to leave that school, I believe, for at least five years at that point. I was in year nine when I left, yep. Mm. So at least about three to five years at that point. Um but for my parents, the religious side of the education was very important. When I I look back on it, do I think I got religious education out of it? No, I don't believe so. Um, I mean, did I know, did I learn how to read Arabic? Yeah, sure. But were any of the other Islamic values of compassion, of mercy, of kindness you know of no racism because that's a very fundamental part of Islamic values were any of those things um adhered to or or upheld no absolutely not right I've learned to read Arabic and that's a great skill in itself Mm. and for that I guess you know that there was that good thing that came out of it but beyond that nothing really but you know to my parents because they have they they you know they immigrated from India they're Muslims as well and i think this is a very common fear among immigrant parents which is a completely valid fear is that you know they'll come here and their children will lose their faith will lose their culture which is absolutely fair and so they did the best they could and they wanted to hold on to that and so they decided the best course of action was to continue in that school and it wasn't until an auntie who was working at that school said hey you know what I'm taking my kids out as well and my parents like really respected her opinion was when they were pulled out and I like I grew up and you know at some point sometimes it really angers me that I was like you know I was telling you I want to leave I don't want to be here anymore Mm -hmm. but you know it was her opinion that you had to take which I'm grateful for you know eventually I did get to leave but it was like it took a while it took a while it took it took there was so much unnecessary crap that I didn't have to see. You know, I never, I never got to go to camp. There was no camping. There was, you know, there was ridiculous ideas of what it meant to be friends with people. Um, saying I'm not like championing the public school system in any way. I'm saying you know it's so much infinitely better. Mm. It's just, especially Islamic private schools, at least from my experience, have a very different way of dealing with issues, especially. Um, with issues such as bullying or violence or any of that kind of sort of stuff, because there's money involved, but it's also it's, as as the Muslim, Muslim community, we do have a tendency to shove it under the rug. Not everyone, but there is a tendency to, to do so. Mm, that's that's
0: really interesting for sure, because like you would think, um, a religious school will uphold those like moral values that you've said. It actually contradicts itself or what it stands for. Yeah, history has taught us a lot <laughs> about religious institutions. Yeah. So, like, was your auntie taking out her kids as well because of the same reasons that you wanted to leave?
2: Um, yeah. So my auntie, her oldest daughter, was actually experiencing a very severe level of bullying as well. She was in year six at that time, and my auntie was like, "Yeah, we got to go." And um, the the educational standard was kind of dropping as well at the same time, so my auntie was like, yeah, we got to go. She relayed that information to my mom and my parents. And then, you know, they kind of took the step as well. And then lo and behold, I moved schools and I, you know, I, you know, met Sherry and that's, <laughs> that's been the journey from to that phase of life. And don't get me wrong. Um, and I think we, you know, public schools had its own challenges. For me and I think it has I think schooling in general has challenges for everybody um I think what happens sometimes is that because we know that everybody goes through these challenges is that I think sometimes a lot of the times admin school school admin or even parents or you know older siblings even ourselves we kind of go no it's not that bad you know it's just part of schooling. yeah you know having issues and challenges is part of schooling but I don't particularly think the abuse is part of schooling which shouldn't be part mm-hmm. of schooling um but yeah
0: definitely I was like curious, so like you said, like there was like a lot of racism in it. So, but most kids would be Muslim, mm-hmm. Muslim, right? So, like, why was there racism when you guys are with with the same with the same faith, right? So,
2: there was no religious hmm. discrimination that I experienced. Um, they may have been by other kids if they were of a different um, Islamic sect. I could, I can't speak on that hmm. because I didn't have that experience. I wouldn't know. However, there is definitely um, racism that exists within, um, the Muslim community. It definitely exists. We do have a tendency where Middle Eastern kids and, um, parents were allowed to get away with a lot of the things that they did. Right. So a lot of the, uh, people that I did, um, was, was bullied by or the boys who did decide it was okay to lay a hand on me and stuff. Um, there were, you know, there were quite a few of them who were Middle Eastern. Again, this is not a generalization of Middle mm. Eastern people and their communities and their values. I'm specifically talking about the school, the schooling system mm. that I saw in that private school, in that Islamic private school. Um and yeah, so, you know, for me, it, it was almost like it's very ironic now because when I hear these, because now when I hear people who have gone to public schools and, you know, who 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 may have more so been, um, you know, um, amongst white, like white populations in like primary school and stuff, um, you know, in eastern suburbs or whatever it may be, um, when they say, oh, you know, for being an Indian, I was called X Y Z. It's so weird because I was called those exact same things. So you know, poo eater, um, a constant. Oh, fam, like you know, ugly, yeah. like because of the color of my skin. So um, not all, not not um, all Middle Eastern people, but they're but most, not most actually. There are a few that are lighter in skin, so they have quite white skin, fair skin, blue eyes, that kind of stuff. So they do have. Um, the wider complexion. So there's that that used to happen. Yeah, there was just, and my food, my food was a very big issue because the Arab culture of the Islamic school, you know, and, and this is where it's very weird because Muslim and Arab is not the same thing. People think it is, but it was very weird to see that reflected in the actual uh, the schooling mm-hmm. system. Muslim and Arab doesn't mean the same thing, but, you know, that's what we saw. So the Arab culture of the school was that, you know, even the food was like, you know, when like falafel and hummus mm. and these things are amazing, you know, like <laughs> charcoal chicken yeah. and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm salivating thinking that it. it's so delicious, right? But because that was part of the Arab culture of the school, so my food um, curries, right. Um, I'm Indian, so biryani and, um, you know, and eating like, like eating that was like, oh, that's disgusting. What are you eating? And, you know, now these same people are the people who go and eat at Indian restaurants. Oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm putting henna on my hands and, you know, <laughs> let me wear a sari like, fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, multicultural days, those were also, um, they were quite, quite torturous as well. Because I didn't look Arab, I visibly looked Indian. Mm. You know, my skin color, my dressing, my food. Your accent is also different. Parents, the accent that your parents have is significantly different to what you know the um, the, mm. the accent that the Arab kids' parents might have. And um, yeah, so it was. It, it's very interesting to see that a school that you know was supposedly meant to uphold Islamic values did anything but. But yeah, that's that. That's what happened. That's my experience. Mm.
1: Just gonna say, did mm-hmm. you feel like your mental health got better after high school?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think school in general, like apart from this whole bullying stuff and everything, I just think school in general doesn't allow for much self-expression. And I think, I think Sherry and I can talk to that in terms of the schooling admin week we came from, the public schooling admin we came from. Holy,
1: yeah, it was it was something.
2: It was, yeah, they had very interesting notions. There were notions where, you know, they'd be like, oh, girls, you know, all girls school and celebrating International Women's Day and all that. You know, then we'd get told things like, you know, why are you guys trying to push for like pants? it's not ladylike to wear pants. More like In the same breath, how can you tell me Oprah Winfrey is an inspiration and, you know, and then go and attend like Zonta breakfasts and all that kind of crap and then tell me the same sentence, wow. you are a woman, you should not be wearing pants. Like
1: I just, it was unfair. Like that's,
2: <laughs> that's the least yeah. of it.
1: But why you couldn't wear like stockings under your skirt? Yeah, Um, not not stockings, leggings. You couldn't wear leggings.
2: But also remember, all of this stuff was exceptionalized if they were school favorites, if this was done by girls who were school favorites. Um, But uh, yeah, but you know, dyeing your hair. Look, I think coming back to that, I just think school is one of the very rigid expressions of a place where Mm -hmm. you can't really express yourself if you're not one to follow the rules, right? And I don't mean not follow the rules in a way that's bad, like hurting people, injuring people, but the idea that you need to fit in this clear-cut box of not you know, defending yourself or asking questions or challenging authorities, that is the, I guess that's a foundational school. And once I left high school, once I graduated from high school, it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. I loved, I I genuinely, I genuinely love university. Like even when I was doing psych for a year and a half, I loved university. Like I love that, you know, I could, I could have a debate with my tutor about, I don't know, something as simple as, you know, why are apples better than oranges? Like something as simple as that. And it'd be okay to debate freedom and ability to do who you want and be who you want. And I I just said do who you want. I don't mean that in a sexual way. <laughs> you, you can do that too, you know? Yeah, but yeah, definitely improved a lot. because And the other thing is, apart from that whole self-expression thing, leaving high school meant... That all of a sudden
0: You get to like choose your friends. Oh yeah, there's
2: that, definitely. You kinda you very quickly friends drop up drop drop off like flies like friends you made because yeah. purely because you saw mm-hmm. them every day they drop off like flies that's that's like one mm-hmm. thing um but my other thing also was that once you get out of high school and whether that's tafe university you work you're working full-time you've taken a gap you whatever it is what happens all of a sudden is that now you're able to access resources not as a minor because up until you're 18 up until you're you know until you turn 18 you are a minor so any information maybe perhaps you don't want being relayed back to authorities at school or whoever it is is very much still debatable, depending on how the counsellor, whoever it is, or whoever you know the the resource that you're accessing, you know how they and you know how they assess just how much they want to relay to your parents. So, you know, for example, being able, you know, to my my psychologist at nineteen, you know, hey, I have self harmed or hey, I have uh, a history of suicide is a lot more felt a lot more safe. And easier because it's because my psychologist, you know, she would let me know if she needed to talk to my mom or talk to my next point of contact. And she'd let me, and she'd ask me, "Who do you want me to, you know, who do you want me to contact?" So I know that they can keep an eye on you. So you have a lot more autonomy. Whereas when you're at school and you decide to go see the counselor for an issue, and you say, "I am depressed," or "I've been having suicidal thoughts," ding, 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 like your your parents know about it. What What do you mean? This, this my child has never done anything. It's it's a literal like it's a free show and it's atrocious. So I think having that power. Um, to an extent, also gives you a lot more comfortability. I don't know if that's a word, but comfortability in your own skin and it gives you a lot more autonomy.
0: So when you were 19, you chose yep. to see the clinical psychologist yourself?
2: Yes. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> my find- for me, finding a psych, and I think this is something I would like to mention in this episode, is that first things first, if, you're- if you are seeking a therapist, if you are seeking a counsellor, psychologist, whatever it may be, a psychiatrist, um, you know, Often movies and Hollywood, they really depict it as this like, you go in and you are besties with the first psych you go see, which is absolute nonsense because most, most people actually have to filter out therapists before they find the one. It's literally like take out the romantic stuff, but literally it's like going through dating phases with different therapists to find the one. And I went through about two or three therapists before I found the therapist that's with me and I did my trauma work with and all that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, I went through about three different ones and, you know, that process in itself can be quite exhausting. But yes, every single time that I did see a therapist, it was on, it was because I was like, I need to see someone. I'm going mad. I'm going crazy. I need to see someone or, or um, I know that, the the therapist that I started seeing in 2019 and I saw all the way through actually this year um I actually started seeing her because a friends you know she she raised an issue with me about about one of my behaviors that really triggered her and the thing is that she what happened was that she she ghosted me for about three months she slept over my house and then she ghosted me for three months you know I was I was like okay bro like I don't know what's wrong I need to know what's wrong for, you, for me to be able to fix it and she was like yeah look this behavior really triggered me and which is absolutely fair if you get triggered by someone I know that it can be very hard to be around them but um I got told three months later and at that point um I was at a very very bad dip um what eventually happened was that that text combined with the fact that you know I had just met my best friend at that time, so Frukan, he you know he's kind of become a rock for me in that sense. You know he was also like, yeah, listen, you really need to see someone because there's only so much I can do to help, right? I was scared, and there was a lot of stigma around it, um, especially with my history with it. So I think that's when something we can get into later as well. I was like, if I don't see someone, um, and this was very realistic, I'm not exaggerating. I was like, if I don't see someone, I am going to end up dead. And I'm sorry, that's really morbid, but that was just the reality at that point. And mm. reading up to that, the other times I'd seen a therapist, I was like, I need to see someone, I'm going crazy. But when I s- sought out the therapist in 2019, I was like, I need to see someone or I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. So each time it was my decision, but it was different levels of intensity that got me going into the, or different factors and external um, external pushes, I guess, that got me into, you know, going stepping into the office.
1: I feel like you've come so far with your mental health. We mm-hmm. both know that you know you're not really seeing someone right now, like not consistently at least. No. Um. So what are you doing right now, just to mm-hmm. you know making make sure that you're okay, you're safe, and what else is there like a routine that you set up? So one of the
2: things that I developed with my therapist and with Fru Khan um, and even with, with the people around me um, who were really a part of the whole process was the first thing you need to realize is you need a support system. Now, most people kind of jar away from this because I think support system means you know I'm gonna like bombard people and suffocate them support system literally means that if my thoughts get too loud I'm just gonna put it on record so my my diagnosis that I have is I have borderline personality disorder I have major depression I have complex PTSD I was anorexic um from 2019 um till the end of 2020 and so I'm recovering anorexic I think I'm, I'm I'm on the recovered part um so that's great what I had to figure out real quick was who were the people if things got real tough who could I pick up the phone and call right so that was one of the first things I had to figure out and I had to do this while I was in therapy um because that stuff that that has stuck with me after therapy um and you know Sherry was in that list um for Khan and then a couple other mates first things first is that during therapy is I had to figure out what exactly were my triggers, okay? Because I go from zero to hundred real fast if I am severely pressed for something. Something has really like set me off. I will, and when I mean zero to hundred, I mean like I could be just sitting one minute and I could probably be heaving and, you know, trying to like tear my hair out and stuff like really intense episodes, and, and I could do that in the next five seconds. And it just like, it's flipping a switch. And the thing is, I had to start realizing, I had to start listening to my body and going, what were the things that happened in those literal five seconds? And it's, a, it's, it's, it can be difficult for a lot of people, especially if you're, if, if you've lived your life in a mm-hmm. constant state of fear and anxiety, like I have, um, it's quite difficult. I had to figure that out. And I did. My biggest thing is I will start hearing a ringing in my ears, or it'll sound like like TV static, and that's what I'll start hearing in my ears. And my throat will feel like someone is is strangling me, right? And so then that leads to the heart palpitation. So these are like my three like yeah instant mm-hmm. signs where I know okay I'm not well. That's like the first thing you need to be able you need to be able to identify what are your triggers. Or, sorry, what are the symptoms that you're not okay? You need help, or you need to do whatever it is to get yourself, you know, to, to calm yourself down. The other one is um, is identifying your triggers. Right now, that can also take a bit of work because you can't identify identify your triggers unless you identify the problems or the issues you have, and you actually go through them and you re- and you reconcile with whatever's happened. Right. And if you don't do that, you often have trouble identifying your triggers. For example, um, Sherry and I love watching horror movies together. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, in a horror movie, if I start seeing, you know, like a sexual assault scene or like a, you know, domestic violence, I can't watch that. I literally cannot see that happen. Um, you know, I don't care if it's for the- if, you know, theatrical purposes or I. it's just it, it, it unsettles me and it and it actually um, makes me averse to touch. Mm. Um, you know, I also had to figure out that raised vo- voices don't cut it for me. Mm. So if Sherry and I get into disagreement and she decides to start screaming, she's never done that. But if, let's say, that happened and she decides <laughs> to start screaming, that to that's going to be a that'll be a counterproductive conversation because I will shut down Mm. so it's really important to identify and you know identify why those happen so there's a plethora of reasons why I am sensitive to those triggers and it's okay and I think after you identify them you have to really become okay with having triggers because I know with the modern culture that we have the social media culture it's like oh my god a snowflake oh we have to put like trigger warnings and stuff now and it's like Then like it doesn't hurt you, you know, because there's this association of like strength by, you know, why trigger warnings or if you ask about, hey, what's the content like? That means you're a snowflake or you're, you know, you're just weak. It's actually no, I think that's a lot of, I think that's strength. I think that's going, I know I have this thing really triggers me, you know, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that I'm okay at the end of the day. It's not about it's not about whether I'm strong or not it's literally about mm. I want to take care of myself and I think that's one of the biggest strengths that humans do have. So I said identify triggers identify your symptoms that lead you you know before you get to the place where you are going to be an explosion. Mm. other thing would be actually figuring out what things calm you down For me when me and my therapist made that chart it was talking to a friend right I know that's so cliche because they tell us tell this to us in like PE. But talking to a friend, um, it's also something as simple as mm-hmm. fresh air actually really works. Sometimes for me, all I need is actually just to curl into a ball mm-hmm. and sit there and write out the feelings that's also something that's needed and then sometimes I need physical touch sometimes I need a hug or need, you know a calming a pat on the back or you know music drawing these are all healthy ways that you can cope with those things and these are ways that I cope and for other people it's things like you know being able to go for a run because for some people it's like I need to get Mm -hmm. this energy out of me I need to get these Mm -hmm. thoughts like running and I need to get my heart pumping for some other reason than that Some people, it's that. Um, And, you know, it's a very cliche thing. I'll do something that you love, but it really does work. And however, I think I also do need to acknowledge because this all doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. So people think that now you've got a blueprint, it's always going to work. It doesn't always work, right? Because there are days where I will wake up and I'll be like, today is a bad day. and. That day, all I may actually end up doing is staying in bed, yeah, eating and staying in bed. And that's fine too, because if that's a way to make sure that you need time to recuperate, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while, but people, I think there really needs to be this understanding that identifying what helps you through it is very dependent to the situation you're in, because sometimes it's, I need to be shaken out of whatever it is. Sometimes it's, I just need to sit with whatever the hell is going on. And
0: either one is okay.
1: Is there like things that you do every day?
0: Apart from um, when you have a trigger or anything. How do you maintain?
2: Mm. Yeah. So this is going to be weird stuff, but I've kind of just realized I like showering. (laughs) (laughs) Hygiene is
0: important for sure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't like shower 50 times a day, but like, you know, I'll have, if I can, at least a shower every day. Right, and in the days, um, there have definitely been gone days without a shower, and that's and you know that that sounds gross to admit, you know, out loud to a lot of people. But this is facts, right? Um, If you are incapable of getting out of bed, it's symptoms of depression, right? So there have definitely been days, and it just makes you feel gross, and it's just a repetitive cycle. But in terms of what I do to do make sure that I'm okay, so I actually have a diary. I look at that diary every single day, and I like you know jot down my things. Get up in the morning. What do I need to do today? Because um, I um, and Sherry recently, and Sherry knows about this. I recently spent a hundred and thirty dollars on like
1: stickers, bullet journal, just stuff. say stickers, <laughs> children's stickers. <laughs> no, we not stickers. Shut up. Stickers Supplies. and pieces of paper. Um.
2: But yes. <laughs> So, you know, I do that. I do um, make my bed. It's a very simple thing. I like clearing my makeup table from time to time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That helps as well. Um, With my, with the showering stuff, I have a very specific routine. After I shower, you know, I come out. I've got like a, like a lotion of like Dove body or whatever it's called. What's it called? It's on my...
1: Dove lotion. called
2: Dove. Gentle lotion. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that (laughs) one. Okay. Um, You know... Putting on like Dove lotion and stuff, and it just really relaxes and calms me. You know, it kind of like it's like centers me, starts me off for the day. Mm-hmm. And reading also really helps. I, I do read every day because it's like it's calming. Um, from time to time, I do journal. Um, so two types of journaling. So there's like the, like the artsy craftsy type of journaling where you know put in the stickers <laughs> that I bought. Um, but then there's also the kind the kind where you. Kind of just reflect maybe in the past couple of months or the past couple of weeks, um, depending on what's needed. But yeah, so those are like common parts. Also, drinking water. I suck at it, but I do try to do it every day.
0: <laughs>
1: what about you, Sherry? What do you do as like your self-care routine? So before this lockdown, every mm. single time I would have like horrible anxiety, mm. I would exercise. Yep. Um, I won't, I won't go for a run because cardio is not my thing but mm. I would walk my dog a lot all you're, all you're focusing during the walk is like how long is he gonna take to pee <laughs> other than that like journaling every day and writing gratitude as well that's what I've found to be very important so yeah what about you Clover?
0: so for me I am the opposite of Sherry so I like cardio mm-hmm. and I don't like weights oh yeah so
1: <laughs> running down
0: the street I do run.
2: I'm the opposite of it. Fricana has been trying to get me into um, 10 minutes of exercise every single day.
1: <laughs> oh, sounds amazing. So lucky. <laughs> Freaking dying. <laughs> but yeah, Trevor, like, what were you saying?
0: I don't necessarily go for a run when I'm like super upset or anything. It's more like I try to do this so that it sets me up for like a good day kind of thing. Like, I get it out of the way early in the morning, like, so that I don't have to think about, like, feeling bad about it afterwards if I don't end up doing it. Which is probably um, 100% the case. So I try to get that out of the way in the morning. And then before I do anything, I try to do morning meditation. And that's just, like, a 10-minute, like, meditation from, like, Goodful on YouTube. I think it's really great. Mm -hmm. It's just, like guided meditation because like I can get very distracted um for sure so guided meditation really helps me um stay focused because all I do is just I have to listen to what that person's saying and they're saying all these like great things like oh ground yourself and hear the sound of the wind (laughs) coming through (laughs) set your intentions for the day and yeah it's just really calming and you know um helps me like focus in the present moment then like just thinking of like the things i have to do ahead of time so yeah that really helps me um and as well as doing that at night as well to wind down really helps cuz sometimes when i go to bed if i have like things that i'm like dreading or excited about i can like have those thoughts ruminate in my brain for quite a while and I don't end up sleeping at all so mm. doing that meditation at night and bringing that mindfulness back like really helps my mental health otherwise it just builds up a crap day for me.
1: Lena, you mentioned how the first step in taking care of yourself or making sure that you don't I guess like get overwhelmed by your triggers is by establishing a good support group I know that back in the day I didn't really have a support system set out because I was very limited in the people I was around and I isolated myself quite a lot. What would you say to people who are mm-hmm. in that position as well?
2: You want a brutally honest answer? Yeah, honest is good. There isn't much you can say. Yeah. Because you know, and I know that at that point, because I was there as well, right? It's not like I, I had people from the very beginning. No, it's only in the past two years I can honestly say that I've seen a change and I've seen and I've kind of really identified these are the people who are going to support me, who are going to cheer me on, but are also going to be there for the Mm -hmm. bad times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You and I both know that there isn't some magical, arbitrary advice that I can give someone who was in that situation all those years ago and now they'll be able to, you know, with that advice, I'll be able to find friends. What I can say, though, is that when you do find those people, life becomes pretty good. I mean, it doesn't solve your problems and, you know, it's not like, by having those people all of a sudden you know mental men- mental illness like says see you later kid and mm-hmm. you know walks out the door and never to see them never to see it again it's not that but so I don't I can't tell you how to find those people in particular like what are the steps concrete steps you know mm-hmm. you do one two three and bam you're gonna have a person or you have people but I think I can say is that Figure out your values, right? Because once you figure out what your values are, what your boundaries look like, what you're okay with, not okay with, if you kind of figure out your values, figure out your boundary, you figure out with what you're okay with and not okay with, that makes the process of getting to know people and then figuring whether or not, you know, that this is someone you would want in your life as a close person, as a support system. And, you know, um, it makes it a lot easier. Because I did the mistake. My mistake was, I I reckon this would be a mistake across a lot of young people. Is the first thing that we do is because we want friendships and because we are humans, humans are social beings, right? It's glamorized in Hollywood. We see it on TV. We see, you know, we, we see this kind of same group of friends and, you know, they're always best friends forever and they're there for each other and they go to each other's houses. That's actually a very unrealistic way to have friends it's very unrealistic mm. people doing things together all the time it's one of the i think it's it's one of the biggest lies that hollywood has particularly fed to young people that friendship groups mean that everybody knows everybody everybody is best friends with everybody it makes no sense yeah. i have more, four maybe five really good friends who are in my support system those people are definitely not best friends with each other Hell, I'd even say that a couple of them have very opposite personalities and they wouldn't get along in a room. The thing is, they are a support system to me because I have... Different friends have different capacities and different roles in your life and people really don't understand this especially when you're younger in high school you're like one friendship group and everybody needs to be like best friends with one another and we're all going to sleepovers together and we're going to movies together we're going to, you know it's it's just highly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Each person is going to give you something different and it's not and I don't mean to make mean to make it sound like a transactional like a monetary relationship but that's just the reality of any relationship you have to give and take. You cannot have a relationship without giving and taking. And that's the same with a support system. My support system with Sherry, for example, right? Our support system is very much, we allow, uh, we hold space for each other to vent. Yeah. Right? We hold space each other to talk things out. And we we actually, to be frank, and (laughs) Clover heard about this before we started the recording, we actually give each other some really pretty big reality checks I gave you know I gave one to her recently she knows what I'm talking about and she's given one to me recently um you know with regards to Clever is laughing because she knows what I'm talking about as well um you know she recently gave me a reality check with regards to a another friendship that I had she's like are hey, you stupid and she just cussed me out right but that's the kind of support system I have with her now with Frukan um you know who's another best friend of mine. With him, it's a very different type type of support system. For him, it's you know, for him, it's more so. Okay, so emotionally, what do you need?
1: Yeah, right. Um, he's much calmer he's, than me.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> he's a lot calmer. For him, it's more so like Sherry and I will bounce off with uh, each other, whereas Rukan will be like, okay, I completely agree and understand your point. But then, if necessary, he would be like, But are you necessary? Are you thinking about this in the correct way? May you have exaggerated this? Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously at an appropriate time, but that's the sort of support I get from him. So it's, you know, people need to realize. And the only reason I was able to find these people and keep these people, so I found her you know, share a lot early on in high school. But the reason we were able to keep this friendship and, right, and I figured out, yeah, you know what, we're on the same page. Values-wise, we're on the same page. But then there were obviously times where other people were let into the support system group from my end. Mm-hmm. And I thought we had the same values or we had the same boundaries mm-hmm. and that didn't work, right? Yeah, because yeah. I, I had refused to kind of figure out my values with those certain topics or with those certain areas. I had refused to figure it out by that point. And it just doesn't work you need to know what your values are you need to have a pretty strong understanding of your boundaries as well a support system works two way two ways so you need to be a support system you know you may need to be a support system to that person as well unless and otherwise agreed on or whatever but I think we also need to remember that you can want someone to be in your support system but be part of your support system Mm -hmm. but they need to be aware of what they're walking into and they need to consent yeah. to be a part of your support system. It's not like you can just drag someone and be like, you are now <laughs> my new best friend and counsellor. That's not how that mm-hmm. works. So that I think that end of it is really important as yeah. well, for people who may not have found out yet or in, that, or in the process of developing their own support system. That's the best advice I could give. Yeah.
1: So leading on from what you said, we're in a lockdown right now. So how do you think that this isolation has worsened people's mental state and how can people possibly get help or possibly build a self-care routine?
2: So first and foremost, as to why there's been a spike in, um, you know, in, in a mental health crisis because of the lockdown. I'm going to say it's because people have actually had to sit with their emotions Mm -hmm. and they've had to sit with their issues and they've had to – now, this obviously doesn't – I'm not applying this to as in – you know, I don't apply this to, for example, cases of of abuse or domestic violence and stuff because that's an ongoing thing, something that someone has to live with constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, I know with me, um, things like depression and stuff, if you are under pressure from university – right? Um, You can go one of two ways. You can either, you know, sometimes you can collapse and you actually don't make it to the end. Or, you know, the other one that I see really commonly in this society has really reaped, you know, its capitalist nature is that we see people work under pressure and they work and they work and they work in whatever capacity they need to work. And so they don't really get time to ever reflect, go back, um, you know, sit with their burnout, sit with their thoughts, sit with their emotions and feelings. And that's just, you know, that's unfortunately the nature of the capitalist society we live in. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest reason is we've had people um, having to have to sit with their issues. They've had to sit with their feelings. They've had to sit with how something makes them feel lockdowns especially have increased the amount of time people have to themselves mm-hmm. because prior to that we didn't have time to ourselves I mean like obviously we know there's that 24 7 24 7 working mechanism that's come about with you know remote working and stuff but I think there's also this um so much time to freely do things and feel things and confront things and confronting things especially by yourself um is very tricky it is It is, it is hell because often, you know, issues that you need to confront don't exist in isolation. Like they're not like, you know, this is an issue that I've had with, let's say the way that my partner does something. I don't know. Washes the dishes. Yeah. Washes the dishes. Let's say something Mm -hmm. arbitrary. Washes the dishes. The issue usually, usually most issues don't exist in isolation to the fact that your partner is washing the dishes a certain way. Usually stems from a history of maybe something that happened in your childhood, maybe something that happened with someone else earlier, maybe something to do with your relationship that, you know, that you're having an issue with, maybe something to do with intrinsically yourself. And you have to start recognising that, putting up, and, you know, and and going through that. So I think that's why we've seen a increase in mental health crisis. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, the increase in mental health crisis has also increased. Um, the Australian healthcare system is not equipped to actually... Um, provide services and um, and facilities and care for people who need it, right? So you know the Medicare system is a mess. Um, Centrelink is a mess like it nobody talks to one another it's not interdisciplinary it's not there's not a, um there's no cross communication going on so it's you know it's really spiraled into this mess it's, it's something done about that I couldn't tell you what but something does need to change from a policy level um but also from an implementation level now um your other question was what can they do yeah to
1: have a self-care routine yeah yeah like typically in people who are isolated either by themselves or Mm -hmm. family in particular what can they do just to maintain a healthy perspective on their own mindset and on the people around them as well
2: okay so this advice would be aimed at people who are not in dangerous situations or dangerous situations of abuse Mm -hmm. you're living in an environment where you know, you're fortunate enough to perhaps not, you know, face abuse or any sort of violence or uncertainty and anxiety and fear. I think maybe figure out and learn who you were before school and work and parents or your partner, you know, before society really, decided to tell you this is what they needed you to be. You develop routines when you know and figure out who you are. Because otherwise, you know, I can give you a routine. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I can tell you, hey, do skincare, you know, <laughs> yeah. do skincare. Mm-hmm. But maybe skincare is not your thing. Maybe you could give it a rat's ass about what your skin looks yeah. like. Right, you know, clean it. Obviously, clean your face. Like I knew everybody should be cleaning their face, but like maybe you don't. Maybe you don't care about a face mask or or
1: yeah. There's no specific way to tell someone this is what you do. It's ultimately something that they have to figure out themselves. But would you say like finding new hobbies is very important? Yeah, I think
2: look, finding new hobbies, and I think honestly, even. Watch people on YouTube do it. Or maybe search it up. One of the things I figured out pretty early on was that I figured that, you know what, I actually like cooking to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, society tells us that in order for you to do a hobby, say something like drawing or painting, you need to be freaking Leonardo da Vinci in order to be able to do the painting. Like, no, you don't, you know, if even if it's just ridiculous, like, you know, if you draw like stick figures. But if that helps you relax or de-stress or maybe it's a routine of where you actually sort of draw stick figures in like a bullet journal sketchbook or something each day and gives you stress relief do it it's and I think we really have to learn how to unlearn this behavior wherever you go that in order to be able to do something or enjoy something as a hobby that we need to be like amazing and good at it and needs to be like Instagram worthy it needs to be like financially viable if we were ever to go and turn it into a side hustle point of you doing the de-stressing activity is not for you to then think about it in a way that would only cause more stress because you can like something you don't have to be amazing at yeah. it and I think the other thing is hmm. if you're doing things try not to look at it in terms of what will my family think or what will my friends think like obviously if you're doing something that's like a heinous crime or something obviously you know kind of think about society before you do something harming something or someone but I'm, I'm from I'm from a Desi household like an Indian background um luckily not in my household but definitely in other Indian households, if someone is really into art what are you doing wasting time? This is ridiculous. What are you doing? There's no money in this. <laughs> Not everything has to be about money, yeah. You can enjoy a hobby without looking at it,
1: yeah, and thinking about it as a financial income source,
2: yeah. So I, I think that's really important, mm. yeah.
1: Definitely agree with that. So, how about Clover? I know that you're currently working during this whole lockdown. And you're working quite a lot. Mm. So, what do you do when you come back home, and how do you distress, de-stress yourself? I
0: don't feel as much of the isolation blues because, like Sherry said, like I go out to work. So I work at in the pharmacy. So that's why I need to physically go there instead of working from home. So that has. Made it easy in terms of like if I were to worry if I don't get to communicate or talk to anyone outside of my household, I, I can do that while I'm at work, mm-hmm. which is great. Coming back from all of that, you know, we are still in a pandemic and it can be worrisome because you are going outside and get a lot of these questions as well while I'm working actually from customers that they are even ask me like, are you scared? I guess like I always tell them like, you know, I'm doing my best, everyone's doing their best to be safe and be protective of themselves and other people. So I am not too worried in that sense. But when I do come home, like a way for me to de-stress is, yeah, like same as Lena, I just like to take a shower. And, you know, while I know that I'm washing um, all the germs or anything from the outside, uh, I know that I'm also doing this for myself and my family to keep ourselves safe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, yeah, the meditation really helps as well. And then, you know, for me, I really love food. And if I do get really stressed to a certain point, I, I just I just grab whatever's there and then I eat it. Yeah. Like, I just need carbs. And then mm-hmm. there is, like, scientific, like, why food, like, you know, it stimulates our peripheral nervous system and it makes us relax and everything so that really does come from like scientific evidence that it does do that so but I know that it can have an opposite effect for other people as well but know what works for you Mm -hmm. and just do it yeah like Lena said just find your inner child try to find what makes you smile and what makes you relax and yeah just do it without trying to think like am I being productive if I'm doing this Yes. Because in society, we are so fast-paced. We want to try and make the most out of every single moment we have. But at the expense of like our mental health, it's unfortunately the reality of it. But yeah, we need to dial down and really give ourselves that space and time to just do that unproductive thing. Watch watch Netflix, like watch seven seasons of The Office if you want to. Mm-hmm. I guess that brings us to the well-being plan that's available online by Beyond Blue where its purpose is to identify possible stresses within your life and it tries to break down these worries by asking you what things right now are stressful, personal warning signs and creating a plan to deal with these issues.
1: So yeah that is a possible avenue. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of our podcast today. If you'd like to send in any of your own comments, questions, or see more of us, follow us at Chewing Gum Podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode and thank you, Lena, for coming onto the show. Chuck Lena I follow on her personal Instagram at underscore L R Ali and her podcast page at Shut Up and Listen. Her tags will be linked in the description. I hope you're able to become inspired with practicing good mental self-care and adopt some of our tips into your daily routine. Tune in next week as we discuss fictional lovers who we loved and who we still love to this day. Thank you, guys. See yous. Thanks, guys, Bye. for having me. See yous.